You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 814 of the Locked on Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland. It is actually Tuesday midday, a special edition of the podcast, because I felt like talking about the NBA playoffs, and joining me graciously to do so over the phone is Ben Ladner. Hello, sir. How you doing? Thanks for having me back on. A pleasure, as always. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm not my normal setup, but it's not his normal setup, so the, the audio may not be as clear as usual, but hopefully everybody gets on board here. We wanted to talk about the two... Game 7's scheduled to happen, one on Tuesday, one on Wednesday, and I know Ben's been paying close attention to the series, to these series, I should say, and so have I, so we'll just dive right in. Uh, the first one is, of course, Jazz Nuggets, that's going to be happening on Tuesday on ABC, by the way, the first midweek ABC game that's not in the finals for a long, long time, so a pretty, a pretty, big, pretty big game feel, and also uh, Vegas has this as a, as a pick'em right now, which is kind of fun, it's a true toss-up. And I'll just ask you broadly, like, how do you feel about the series, other than the fact that we all agree the offense has been ridiculous, but uh, are you having fun watching this, or are you worried about the defense? <laughs> a little bit of both. Um, you know, I think it's, it's fashionable to talk about how bad the defense has been, and it certainly hasn't been great. Um, but the shot-making in this series has been just otherworldly. Like, Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell are hitting some of the most insane pull-up jumpers that you'll see two guys hit in, in a playoff series, you know? So it, it is kind of a combination of, of poor defense. And I think the defense has improved over the course of the series, but I mean, these guys have just been on fire. Even guys like Mike Conley and Jordan Clarkson for Utah have just been, you know, hitting contested threes off the dribble, um, firing without a conscience. So it's been a very offense heavy series and surely, you know, certainly part of that is the, the defense, but you know, I've been really impressed with just the way these guys, even, after teams have made defensive adjustments and things like that, just the way they've been able to sustain the offense and the shot making. Um, it's been pretty, uh, pretty incredible, just especially Mitchell and, and Murray just going back and forth, hitting what I consider just kind of ridiculous shots. Yeah, I think especially early in the series, the defense was notably bad, but I don't think it's actually improved since then. And the shot making has just been, like you said, it's been pretty insane. I mean, just for the series, Mitchell is shooting 55% from three, Murray 57% from three, and Mike Conley 61% from three. And not on the super small sample sizes either. Like, obviously, everything is a small sample size in a playoff series, but uh, they're getting up a lot of attempts. It's been wild. Uh, there's been plenty of discussion about the bubble and, like, how much it's juicing the shooting numbers and uh, how sustainable all this is. My guard is up on all of that. I think that uh, there is some noise here, but at the same time, it's not like – these guys are just shooting open catch-and-shoot jumpers and making a bunch of them. They're creating, especially Mitchell and Murray, are creating a ton. And both guys are playing over their heads, in my opinion, but at the same time, they're still very good players. And uh, I'm in this weird spot where I, I, of course, enjoy defense more than most. But uh, it's been fun to watch these guys kind of obliterate the defenses. I mean, I guess the transition point is to look ahead to Game 7. I mean, Denver's defense has been so much better the last, like, six quarters. Utah has had some trouble solving it, even with Donovan playing so well. Um, I think the momentum factor, if you want to factor that in, I'm not sure if I would or not, obviously goes to Denver, but uh, Utah has also been the better team in terms of some of the metrics in this series. Do you think it's a true toss-up as we look ahead to Game 7? 
something close to it, I would say. I mean, certainly Denver does have the momentum, as you mentioned. I, I kind of think Utah is the better team. They showed in the first four games why that's true. Um, I actually think uh, Mitchell is a better player than Murray, even though Murray has, has been balling out the last three games. Although Denver has the best player in the series, and Nikola Jokic, who has quietly been uh, pretty unbelievable in the series. I think he's been overshadowed a little bit by Murray's play. Um, you know, it's, I think the big question that I'm looking at in Game 7 is something that you just touched on, which is how does this sustain? You know, and, and like, who can sustain this for one more game? Because the thing about hot shooting in a playoff series is you can say, well, yeah, it's not sustainable for the long term, but it doesn't need to be. It only needs to be sustainable for seven or even four games. Um, and that, you know, and if, you, if you can capitalize on that hot shooting for just a limited amount of time, that's enough to win you a playoff series. And both of these teams have been so hot that you wonder when they're going to come back down to earth. And I think, you know, whichever team does come back down to earth is, is probably the, going to be the one that loses tonight, you, you know, just because that's kind of the way this series has, has been. So I'm just curious, you know, can Jamal Murray sustain the ridiculous step back shooting that he's been, that he's been displaying in the last few games? Can Donovan Mitchell maintain that pull up accuracy that he's shown in this series? You know, can Nikola Jokic come out with another good game uh, is, is any team going to get a surprise performance from a role player? Can Mike Conley and Jordan Clarkson sustain their offense? Um, I think, you know, whoever kind of blinks first in that sense is probably going to go home tonight just because that's in a series as wild as this one. Um, you know, whichever team kind of comes back to earth, you almost assume that the other team won't. And then, you know, that, that team probably comes out ahead. Yeah, it's a fool's errand to really try to predict this, and I, I'm still going to make you do it in a little bit. But it, it really is about you know the make or miss, the make or miss league stuff is uh, sometimes overblown, but it really is the case in a series like this. I think, especially in a one game sample, um, you know, right. shooting, shooting luck, shooting variance, however you want to describe that, might dictate what happens. Uh, there is scheme stuff, of course. You know, Denver has some rotation questions that they've had throughout the series, like Paul Millsap who I love, uh, has been really bad in this series and have been like they've struggled with Paul on the court. Um, Utah has been trying to figure out a way to slow Murray. And Royce O'Neal doesn't want to shoot anymore. There's, lot, there's lots of little things around this series that could make the difference. But I tend to agree that you know Mitchell is better than Murray in a vacuum. Will he be in Game 7? I don't know. Um, you know. Jokic, Gobert, there's all kinds of factors here. But they're both playing without at least one key piece with Bogdanovich and Barton this entire series. The return of Gary Harris is huge. I know he's not been like incredible, but he can at least play some perimeter defense in a way that nobody else can on this roster. I mean, is there anything like little stuff that you're keeping an eye on for Game 7? I know we were talking about it being make or miss, and that's actually kind of how I feel about it, but are there little adjustments or things that you would like to see or um, a guy or two that's under the radar that is probably key to, the, to Game 7? I think one of the things I'm going to be watching for is whether Utah – continues to get sucked into this kind of isolation heavy style of offense because as good as Mitchell has been and, and he's good at isolating and pulling up and stepping back and creating for himself I think Utah is at their best or I should say at its best when when Mitchell's operating in the pick and roll and he's collapsing the defense and either scoring or kicking out the shooters that was a big reason why he had 57 in the first game is he was just eating Nikola Jokic and Michael Porter Jr. and you know, every single one of Denver's defenders alive in the pick and roll. And I think in the last couple of games, they've sort of, they sort of simplified the offense in a way that I don't know is completely healthy because they're not getting that same level of ball movement, the same level of um, kind of multifaceted attack that, that Utah has become known for. 
um, under the, you know, the kind of the Quinn Snyder Donovan Mitchell partnership. So I, I think Utah is at its best when its offense is involving multiple people, when it's more dynamic, when it's getting Rudy Gobert uh, lob attempts, or at least using his gravity going downhill to open up three point shooters. Uh, I think Mitchell is actually a really good passer specifically when it comes to kicking the ball out to shooters off of the pick and roll. I've been really impressed with the accuracy, the timing of his passes in this series. Um, but when they're just isolating, when it's just Donovan Mitchell trying to break his guy down one-on-one, you don't get some of those same ancillary benefits. And then you're also not involving guys like Joe Ingles, Royce O'Neal, even Mike Conley to some degree, who a lot of his stuff has been coming out of isolation the last couple games as well. And I'm not sure that's the best way to use him either. Uh, and then for Denver, I think, you know, can Michael Porter Jr. be playable? How much is Utah going to attack him? I think he's been really helped by coming off the bench and not having to defend as many minutes with, with Denver starters also on the floor because he's been an absolute sieve on defense this series. Um, if he can survive, if he can give them 20 to 30 good minutes off the bench and maybe even close a game seven, I think that's big for, for Denver. If not, you know, they're kind of down to Mitchell and Jok- or Murray and Jokic, I should say. Um, and, and that leaves their offense, you know, unless Murray just has one of these ridiculous games, which he's capable of. Um, I do think that leaves them just a little bit thin on threats if Porter isn't that third guy. So uh, there's going to be a lot of sort of different, you know, if this, then that types of situations that are going to determine this game. But those are kind of two that I'm looking for. I totally agree. And, you know, on, on Utah's side, they kind of went away from Ingles, I thought, in Game 6. Not that he has to be a primary, but they, they've had some success with the Ingles-Gobert pick-and-rolls as a sort of a secondary option. They just kind of disappeared in Game 6, which, which I kind of hated because you know, Mitchell's been really good, as, as has Murray, but you can't really allow – I guess you can if he's just got it going like that, but you can't really allow for Mitchell to be only asked to do isolation all the time. Uh, there's so many little things. The de- defensive – matchups in game seven by the way historically not always but defense usually plays up and usually get there's some rock fights historically in game sevens this series is not set up to do that but it's it's of course possible with the with some negative regression in the shooting that you could see more of a more of a slugfest I wouldn't bank on that considering these defenses but you know Utah is the better defensive team I do believe that they're not they're not great this is a a flawed defense in some ways, but they do have better personnel defensively still than Denver. So if you want to lean in that direction, I would probably go there. But, you know, if Jamal, I think it was Zach Lowe on his podcast referenced Jamal Murray as like one of his calling cards before this breakout has been that he's been inconsistent, like pretty much his entire career. Like he, he's been a good player, but he's had some really high highs and then he'll just disappear. Even within games, Murray will have a stretch where he's just unguardable and then a whole quarter where he goes silent. If he has a bad game, I don't know if Denver can overcome that. Um, I guess it's the same for Mitchell in some ways, but Utah does have a little bit more to go to, in my opinion. But I don't know. Unless you have any final thoughts, I want to get your uh, your pseudo prediction. I will not hold you to this because, again, this is a pickup in Vegas. This is a true coin flip. But are you leaning one way or the other? Uh, well, before I get to that, I'll just add a couple things, kind of off of what you said. Um, one of them is, is sort of regarding the Murray Mitchell dynamic that you mentioned. I also think Mitchell just has more to his game. Than Murray, so if he's not having one of those scorching shooting nights, he can still bring a lot to the table offensively. Whereas Murray, I think if he's not hitting shots, you know he's not an unbelievable passer. He's not. Uh, he's a good cutter. He can still impact the game in certain ways. But I think scoring is is much more of the focal point for Murray than it is for Mitchell. And both guys are good at at that trait. Obviously, we've seen in the series. Um, but I think Mitchell can impact the game in more ways if his shot isn't falling. 
So that probably tilts toward Utah um, if, if neither guy has one of those incandescent games. Um, the other thing I'll say, just as an Indiana graduate, I'd like to see some more Jawan Morgan. I, I thought, I mean, I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek, but I actually thought Utah had a lot of success with him on the floor, especially in those first two games. They played well when he was on the court. Uh, even in games uh, three and four when he came off the bench, they, they looked pretty solid in those minutes, and his playing time kind of disappeared the last couple games. Uh, they've been using him more as just kind of a stopgap, and I get that it's difficult with George Niang and Tony Bradley in the rotation, and they want to play with O'Neal at the four and sometimes Ingles at the four, and Gobert's just going to play more minutes because he's you know your best player. So I get that there are complications that will stand between Jawan Morgan and more playing time, but I actually think he helps them in the right situations, and you know maybe that's a, a card that Quinn Snyder plays. On the other hand, you know he's an undrafted rookie, and this is a game seven, so maybe you don't quite trust him. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you, if you're Quinn Snyder, because so far I don't think he's coached an amazing series, but I'm curious, like he is in kind of a tough spot um, because. You know, on the like Jamal Murray's making a lot of tough shots. I don't yeah. think Utah's played terrible defense, but I'm curious if you're Quinn Snyder, do you come right out of the gate with a double team or trapping on pick and rolls on Murray? Do you wait till he hits a couple shots? Do you just stick with your game plan the whole way through, no matter what, and say if he makes shots, we lose, and that's it? Like, what's your approach as far as trying to contain Jamal Murray? I'm usually a stick to my plan guy, but in a game seven, win or go home, you I think you can't do that if he's got it going now. Yeah. I, pro- I probably wouldn't come out with it because I couldn't I probably wouldn't come out with double teams immediately because a I think with Royce O'Neal on him it's not as bad not not that Royce has been great but he is he's a better option than the other options they have when he's off the court I think you have to try that even more if the, if he's being guarded by Mitchell or Conley or whoever um, then you get into a situation where you want to blitz him a little bit more but Murray is a guy who I think you don't want him to get going but I'm not sure he's earned the from the from the opening tip runner double at him all the time status i wouldn't bother yeah. me if they tried it but i think that's you know quinn has not been I, I agree he's not been incredible in the series i think he probably is the guy i trust a little bit more between him and malone but it's not like the, a huge gap but that's a question people are asking and i'm not really sure what the answer is because murray is just so so above his head right now historically that it's a one game sample and you can't just let him beat you but i also think that if you really really sell out Denver does have Jokic to kind of facilitate offense and do other things. They have some other talent. It's not like Murray is the only guy that can beat you. So I wouldn't unless he has it going, but it's easier for me to say, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think I agree. And, and also, you look at the numbers, it's like four guys in history have ever scored 50 twice in a playoff series. Two of them are Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell in this series. Yeah. Like, what are the odds that he's going to go for 50 a third time? In the, you know, so it's just, it feels statistically unlikely, but like you said, game seven like the sample size is so small you don't have time to wait for the regression to the mean for the system to play itself out you kind of just have to um you know make the adjustment and and play for the short term so i think i agree with you in general i'd also like to see uh murray i'm sorry mitchell and conley get get more cracks at uh at murray because i I think both those guys are are adequate on ball defenders at the very least and conley's probably even better than that Um, and they just it feels like they haven't spent much time on jamal murray this series but um, you know, we'll see. I, I think that's that's probably the biggest question uh, in, in Utah's coaching meetings right now is just what do we do with Jamal Murray? Yeah, as it should be. Uh, he's been out of his mind, and uh, there you go on that. I mean, I guess my final prediction would be if you made me choose, I would take the Jazz uh, narrowly, but I wouldn't I wouldn't wager on it, that's for sure. Do you? Are, are you leaning one way or the other before we go to the other series? 
I think I'd take the Jazz, too. I just think they've been the more consistent team in this series. And I get that both teams have won three games, but I just think Utah has looked better um, from basically every the entire series with the exception of the fourth quarter of the last three games, really. So um, I, I think, I think I'd probably lean Utah as well, but you know, it's, it's possible that Denver has the two best players on the floor tonight. And if that's the case, it's going to be hard for Utah to overcome that. Yeah, there you go on that. That's plenty, I think, and Game 7s are fun. Again, ABC, a rare national, true national game. That'll be fun. And uh, after a quick break here from our sponsor, we will talk more about Rockets and Thunder. But first, a word from Built Bar. Built Bar is the best-tasting protein bar ever, and the new and improved Built Bar is even more delicious than before. I told you in the past how much I really love the original Built Bar flavors, but now there are 18 amazing flavors to choose from, including the six new selections, which include caramel brownie, lemon almond cheesecake, and a personal favorite of mine with cookies and cream. Each bar is covered in 100% chocolate, and importantly, they are all soft and easy to chew. From there, it is crucial to know that Built Bars are fantastic for those of us trying to be health-conscious. You can maintain or even lose weight, while still indulging in a delicious treat. Bars are low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, high-fiber, and Built Bar is even built for the keto diet. Go to BuiltBar.com right now. Use the promo code LOCKEDON. When you do that, you'll get $10 off on your next order. One more time, that's BuiltBar.com. Promo code LOCKEDON for $10 off on your next order. Check it out at BuiltBar.com. All right, Ben, we're back. And uh, Rockets Thunder, Wednesday, Game 6 happened Monday night. Now Game 7, this series, in contrast to Jazz Nuggets, Houston is seen as a clear favorite still in Game 7. They're about a five-point favorite right now, um, whereas the other series was a true coin flip. And uh, that was a weird game on Monday night. I covered it for Dime. It was a bit of a strange thing. And uh, defensively, Houston's been great in this series, but offensively they have not been incredible, which is interesting to point out. There's lots of different stuff we can attack here, but um, are you feeling like OKC can maybe keep this close? Can, can it be frisky? Like, what are you what are you looking for broadly for Game Seven? Yeah, well, I mean, kind of going back to the point you made in the last series, if this is going to be a rock fight, if this is going to be a typical Game Seven where it's slow and low scoring and you know just a, a gritty kind of game, I think that's exactly what the Thunder want. I think that's exactly what Chris Paul wants. That kind of suits their style. That said, I do think Houston's the better team. I think they probably should have won this series in five or six. So credit to OKC for getting it to this point. Um, and if you get to a game seven, you know, anything's possible. Um, I thought in game six, OKC did a much better job um, attacking the offensive glass using their advantage there um, because you know, Houston is obviously not a team that's going to get a lot of offensive or a lot of defensive rebounds relative to league average. And I thought, OKC really imposed their will, especially with Steven Adams chasing down offensive rebounds. Um, they forced a lot of turnovers, especially late in that game. I thought Houston's offense really stalled out in part because Oklahoma City was really active and they were just really disciplined and forced a lot of turnovers. And then going off of that, they didn't foul. They did not put James Harden at the line as much as he's used to getting there. Um, and if you can do that, like that's, that's probably the number one key to slowing down Houston's offense is, is keeping Harden off the line because that's what he wants to do, and that's probably what he's best at. So if they replicate that formula in, in Game 7, uh, it's certainly not an automatic win, but they definitely put themselves in, in good position to, uh, to win the game. And I, I actually think they might have the more reliable crunch time offense just because they have a guy in Chris Paul who is not the offensive talent that James Harden is. He's not the one-on-one scorer. Uh, he's not the, uh, the, the prolific offensive player, but... He does have a lot of counters in his game. He's a versatile offensive player. He reads the game. 
he takes what the defense gives to him in a way that I think Harden is a little more reluctant to. And if it's if it's 94-94 with a minute left and, and you need to just sort of execute your offense, get a bucket, and, and the defense is really keyed in and you just need to score from anywhere on the floor, Chris Paul is a pretty good option uh, to run your offense, and, and Harden is as well. But if OKC can get it to that point, if they can be disciplined enough to keep this low scoring, to keep Houston off the line, uh, to sort of slow the game down and just make it difficult, uh, I think I think they're in in pretty good position relative to where most teams might be against Houston. Yeah, I mean, I mean for the season, Oklahoma City was you know incredible in, in clutch situations. I'm not sure how much that really translates, but you can see some of the reasons why. I mean, Paul's so good at, at the end of games. Uh, their defense has been better in those situations, and it's not a fluke in Houston. I mean, somebody was joking about this on on Twitter this morning where I was looking at it. If Houston's not up by 10 or 12 in the fourth quarter, um, they're not going to feel great. I, they, they need to win this game comfortably, or it's going to get real tight, I think, with the way that Houston's been operating um, offensively in the series. And I agree with you 100% on keeping you know the fact that Harden's not been able to get to the line. Overall, shooting efficiency-wise, Houston's like a top-five team in the league in true shooting over the regular season. Not, they've, they've been below average so far in this series. And... A lot of that is just guys not playing that well. Harden's been fine to good, like Harden's been himself for the most part. But Russell Westbrook is kind of a mess after missing some time. He was terrible, I thought, for the most part on Monday. Eric Gordon's not been his best either. Um, it's hard for Houston to win if both of those guys are bad. Um, that's over, that's over, oversimplifying it to some degree, but they are in the number two and three options generally for this offense. And if both those guys are A, playing, and B, bad, that's a rough combination, and it's tough to pull Russ, but I, I said it as much during the game on Monday. Russ shouldn't have been on the court at the end of the game probably with as bad as he was, and I know you, you can't probably do that because he is Russell Westbrook in capital letters, but he was so bad in that game, and there's this narrative now that Harden doesn't want the ball at the end of the games and all this stuff, and I don't want to get into all of that necessarily, but if it comes down to a close game late, it probably is advantage Thunder, even though I'm with you that Houston is the better team. Uh, I think that's very clear if you watch just most of the series. It's just that Oklahoma State has made the plays when they've had to. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because Houston's defense has been good. That's that's the craziest part about this. If you told me that Houston yeah. was going to hold Oklahoma City to 1.01 points per possession and then this, and we're, we're in a game seven, that's not a likely scenario to me. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, and I think you know, it feels like Russell Westbrook is always in capital letters, doesn't it? It's, he's always just kind of going – 100 miles an hour no matter what. And I actually thought the last play of regulation last night really exemplified that, where he kind of just barrels down the court without much of a plan, tries to kick it out and ends up turning it over. And it's, it's you know, that's, that's sort of a microcosm of his game. Sometimes that play works out. Sometimes that, that creates really huge advantages for his team. And other times it ends in a, you know, a turnover that costs his team the game. Like it's just, he has one speed, he has one gear. Sometimes it works, and when it doesn't, it's really ugly and it's really rough, and I think that's what happened last night. He is coming off of that quad injury, so it's not like this is the, the peak version of Russell Westbrook we're talking about or anything, but you know that, that's part of the situation here where Houston is disadvantaged by having their second-best player coming off a, you know, a somewhat serious injury and not really having much time to get his legs back under him, and, and that has consequences, and I think we saw it last night. I agree with you. I don't think he should have been on the court, um, particularly because he was taking so many possessions away from Harden. When Harden was actually playing quite well on offense down the stretch of that game, it felt like a lot of the possessions that went to Westbrook should have been running through Harden instead. Um, the, the big thing 
that I that I, I think is going to be key for OKC tomorrow uh, is can they force Houston to take above the break threes? Because I thought they did a better job last night of preventing corner threes, which is what Houston wants. Houston's one of the best corner three shooting teams in the league, but they were 25th in above the break three point percentage this season. And they're 16th out of 17 teams in the playoffs in above the break three point percentage this year. So to me, like that's the big swing factor for Oklahoma city. If the, and, and Houston's running all these actions, like these flare screens, these cuts, you know, these kind of circle throughs to get corner threes. That's what they want. The drive and kick game. Um, but that's the shot they're looking for. If I'm Oklahoma city and I'm Billy Donovan, I'm basically telling my guys to stay home on the corners. Let Austin rivers take an above the break three, let Daniel house take an above the break three. Do not let these guys get open from the corners because that's their forte. Um, I would expect OKC to come out with that pretty high up, uh, pretty prominent in their game plan. And if they can take that shot away from Houston, and, and make them take above the break threes where they're not comfortable and then just take away the rim enough without fouling. And I realize that's a lot to ask, but <laughs> that, that's a pretty solid defensive formula when it comes to, you know, slowing down James Harden and the Rockets and Harden's going to hit shots. He's going to make difficult looks. Um, and, and that's going to happen. That's part of the game with him. But, um, you know, to me, that that's a big area where Oklahoma city can, if they can really dial in there, I think they've got a great chance. And again, I think, while OKC's offense is not as good as Houston's, it's a little bit more diverse. And so if you can take away a big strength of Houston's offense and, and kind of pick your spots from all over the floor on the other end, I can see things swinging toward Oklahoma City in that situation. Yeah, and we could do an hour on this game, I'm pretty sure. But there's lots of uh, interesting stuff from that. You know, Houston's role guys, like you said, are just more comfortable from the corners. Um if Russ is Russ, that it, that would help. I would help Houston, but at the end of the day, you still want Harden to be your primary guy in situations that really matter. Um, on Oklahoma City side, like Shea Gilchrist Alexander has been pretty bad in this series, in my opinion. He's still a really talented guy, Me too. but defensively, it's been kind of a mess. Offensively, he's been tentative for the most part. And if he's that guy again, that's tough for OKC, even with Chris Paul playing great. And I love Chris Paul. I unconditionally love Chris Paul. But uh, it's it's tough to have to make him do that kind of volume um, at this point in his career over and over again. And right now he kind of has to. You know, fortunately for Oklahoma City, Gallinari broke out of his of his mini slump on Monday. That was huge, and that gives that gives him a number, a number two guy. But if the Thunder are having to play Dort against Harden and also having uh, SGA really struggle offensively, it becomes kind of difficult in a lot of ways. And then on Houston side, like Robert Covington, who I love. Oklahoma City did a great job, especially in the fourth quarter on Monday, getting him um, on the ball, and he's not great on the ball. We saw that. We saw Chris Paul kind of carve him yeah. up on the ball. So there's lots of little matchup things to take advantage of. I know the broad strokes will, will basically probably be about Harden, maybe Russ, and then Paul, but there are little matchup things to um, attack on both ends, and Houston is better, but uh, Houston also has this high-variance game, and if they don't make threes, I mean, that, that's credit to Credit's OKC, but them forcing Houston into, I mean, Houston's still getting off a ton of threes. That's what they want to do, but they're not the greatest quality threes. And if Houston has a bad night, they're always susceptible to a one-game shooting shooting variance loss. And the numbers have not been great in this series. And if that continues, then suddenly the playing field's leveled. Yeah, that's where that game seven variance really comes into play because on the one hand, Houston could shoot 45% from three and then, and win by 20, right. you know, but if they shoot 20%, <laughs> right. 
like, you know, Houston is maybe as much as any team in the league, uh, trust the numbers, trust the process, you know, no pun intended type of team, uh, because they're going to shoot the shots they take. They're not going to change the shots they take. And if, if they make them, they win. If they miss them, they lose. And they, and they just trust that in the aggregate, things will level out their way. Um, if I'm them, I, I, this is a worst case scenario going to a game seven where that variance can, can really come into play. You don't have time for it to, to play itself out and, you know, come back to, to the average one bad game and you're doomed. And again, I think that's where, you know, just the diversity of Oklahoma city's offense, it's they're prone to stalling out. They're prone to not having, you know, that high upside just blitz you with, with three pointers and, and shots at the rim. But they also, I think, aren't prone to those, you know, just those, you're not making your threes, so you're doomed type of games. You know, they have other ways of scoring, and, you know, ideally they would be clicking on all cylinders. But if they're not, I think the Thunder have ways to score that don't rely on just their role players making threes and, and making their best player making tough step backs and all that. Um, so, I don't know, I still lean Houston in this game. I think they're the better team. I think they have the best player. I, I just, I trust kind of the long term body of work that they've put together but uh, this is like this scenario I think favors Oklahoma City this this is I think Oklahoma City is probably happy to to be in a game seven against this team whereas Houston I think is is probably uncomfortable going into this type of situation that's very well put I think Houston should have won the series already and because they didn't they're now on uh you know this is obviously very simple but they're now on high alert because yeah uh, this is a team where their advantages are not necessarily confined to this one-game scenario. And Chris Paul, for all of the weird narrative about him being a bad playoff player, which was never true, like he's really, really good in this kind of that. scenario. It's it's never been true. It's just because he's never been on a team that won. But for most of his career, it was not on him. And regardless, he's he's great in these scenarios. And uh, you know, Billy Donovan versus D'Antoni is probably an advantage to Houston, but not a massive one. I don't know. Houston is still the better team. I have to pick Houston. But if it's tied going to the fourth quarter. Uh, I might I might have to pick Oklahoma City at that point. I know that's sort of a hedge, yeah. but if Houston's not like imposing their will, um, it might get tight. I mean that's kind of an oversimplification again. But Oklahoma City has just been the better team all season long in those kind of scenarios, and I would defer to them, like you said, on their varied approach. Um, defensively, they're probably a little bit better than Houston, even though Houston's been good in the series. If if Oklahoma City is playing Dort and playing their optimal defender defenders. That might be better defensively too. I don't know. I have to, I have to pick Houston, but I don't. I don't love it. I think that uh, they should have won this series in probably five, and they didn't. So here we are. No, I agree. I agree. I'm going Houston just because there is the potential that they win by 20, and I, yep. I think there are more outcomes in which they win. But I think a close game favors Oklahoma City. Um, and if we're if we're accepting the premise that the game that a game seven is going to be slow and low scoring and tight, um, again, I think that that situation favors OKC. Okay, it was interesting last night to see uh, noted playoff chokers James Harden and Chris Paul uh, <laughs> trading trading key buckets at the end of a playoff game. I yeah, weird. wonder. Uh, there are, there are a lot of silent voices that I didn't hear on Twitter after that happened. I, yeah. wonder, I wonder where they went. Their narrative is fun, but yeah, I, I I don't think Oklahoma City is capable of blowing Houston out. And I do think that Houston's capable yeah, of blowing Oklahoma City out. So that's the uh, that yeah. might be the swing factor in this game. Well, Ben, you've given me too much time on, on your lunch break, but well, keep, keep going. Fire away. One more thing, if I can. Um, just the, the shooting luck, I thought in game six, really tilted toward OKC. Uh, Dort hit a couple big threes that, like, he was wide open and they were letting him shoot the shot, and he made them. He, that's not typically going to happen. 
Um, so that's something I would watch out for. And then Houston just didn't shoot well from three last night. They took almost 50% of their shots from beyond the arc, but just didn't make a high percentage of them. And, you know, again, that's kind of baked into their strategy, that potential for a bad night. But, you know, all things being equal, I thought, I thought Houston got better shots in the aggregate. And I think if, if the averages play themselves out, I think Houston probably wins that game. So I, you know, maybe that's one thing that worries Oklahoma city, but again, I mean, that's, those are kind of the possibilities you leave yourself open to when you get in a playoff series like this. You know, it's not altogether surprising that Houston had a bad night. I'm just curious, is that going to happen two games in a row? You know, what's the probability that they're going to shoot 32, 31%, whatever it was uh, for two consecutive playoff games. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, game sevens are fun. Uh, We, we live for this kind of stuff, you know, granted, Probably the only team involved in either one of these that actually has you know title real title chances is the, is the Rockets, but regardless, uh, you know high high drama winner go home game sevens are always uh, always good, and well, I'm glad you came on to uh, preview these two. Ben, you have anything to plug? I know your podcast is still cooking along, so please fire that off. And thanks as always for coming on. Yeah, yeah, read and react NBA podcast. We're basically wherever you find podcasts. Uh, I think we're going to have a new episode tomorrow, probably maybe tonight. Depends uh, what the editing team is up to uh, in the intermediate hours. Um, so, yeah, other than that, I'm writing still occasionally for the step back, but, but mostly it's going to be on Read and React. You can check that out. And uh, if you enjoyed this discussion that we've just had, you will probably like that podcast as well. There you go. Follow Ben. Follow me if you want to. Thanks for listening to this special edition. We'll be back again later in the week. Please subscribe, and we'll see you next time.